I said that I would talk about two ways in which soul-making or imaginal practices, or two kinds of soul-making and imaginal practices, can augment or expand our consideration of ethics. And um, relatively briefly touched on how imaginal practice in, in the ways that we've taught it so far can come in and uh, enrich, dimensionalize, give added range and also depth and strength and possibility to our ethical consideration, ethical action, ethical stance in life. And I mentioned a second possibility in addition to the sort of standard sort of imaginal practice, mentioned a second possibility, uh, which I think I called the ideational imaginal, or the ideological imaginal, or imaginal ideas. And so I'd like to talk a little bit about that, um, introduce it as a possibility, and uh, there's probably much more that can be explored here. I've touched on it in the past. I don't think I've used those words before, ideational, imaginal. Um, I think I've just mentioned it very briefly over the last few years, for instance, in the possibility of, excuse me, um, meditating or finding an opening in meditation from uh, some sensible perception, for example, of beauty or some inner image of something beautiful. I think I gave the example of some beautiful music that was playing in, in my mind. And uh, and sort of travelling from that to a more, if you like, pure essence of beauty in itself that is not so coupled with, hinged on, um, related to an instance of beauty. Uh, this or that beautiful thing music or object or whatever it is. So I think I've just mentioned it a couple of times. We haven't really amplified it and I don't remember if anyone's really picked up on it that much. But I want to talk about it a bit now. And I want to talk about it in the context of talking about ethics in this context. So, uh, And particularly in the context of introducing uh, the ideas of um, moral values and virtues which is uh, to do with a kind of ethics that sometimes people call virtue ethics, or a kind of approach to ethics uh, that people call virtue ethics. And this is one possible way of approaching Sila, one possible way of um, uh, considering ethics and how we weigh up um, uh, what's important, what we prioritise, etc., in our approach. So... Introducing the ideation imaginal in the context of introducing the ideas of moral values and virtues. And so there's ideation imaginal that doesn't so obviously overlap with this area of ethics. And of course there's um, ethical considerations that don't necessarily overlap with ideation imaginal. And some of the, in fact quite a lot of uh, where I draw my inspiration from and some material from uh, in this regard is from the philosopher Nikolai Hartmann who has a massive tomb uh, called Ethics Um, and 
really touches me, uh, touched me when I read it um, in his, uh, the way he opens this out and how he talks about it. And uh, I feel there's a lot uh, of relevance to the soul there and therefore to soul making. Now, as we go through some of this material, I want to, again, sometimes draw connections uh, to Buddha Dharma and also to soul-making Dharma and also to draw out some of the implications in uh, thinking of things these, this way, these ways and approaching them these ways. So I, I guess we could go in in any order. Um, I think... I might start with a sort of more, uh, let's say, general introduction. So just the idea of these ideas, um, or these ideas and and the sort of theory of it a little bit. Um, So we'll start with that. I really hope that you'll immediately see, even though I'm talking in generalities at first, that uh, I, I hope it won't feel abstract to you, that you can sense immediately in your heart and soul the... Um, how these things matter to our lives, matter um, for society, and matter to the soul. Um, okay, so values and virtues. Um, let's start there. Um, this word value, uh, particularly with regard to moral values, is um, is a word that in English has replaced the what used to be the more common word of the good, um, and uh, I think it's agathon in Greece and Greek and bonum in in Latin. So the good, and so we we have this word goods, goods. You're shipping goods here or there. You're paying for the goods. You're selling goods or whatever. So it's related. What's 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 uh, what's goods and good is is of value, something valuable. So, you know, just for example, health is something valuable. Um, Food, nutrition is something valuable. Um, Property uh, is is something valuable. Happiness, consciousness, life, uh, these are all uh, kind of values, you know, in, in one sense. When we talk about values, and obviously there are you know many many more, um, m- most values are valuable because they enable something else that is, if you like, more ultimately valuable. So, for example, um, health is valuable in that it um, allows one to have the energy to live and to do and to experience. Uh, this or that, or to do an experience more widely. Uh, so health in itself is valuable because it allows us to live and to do an experience. We could also not stop there. Why is living or doing or experience, is it in itself valuable, or is it that doing is valuable and experiencing is uh, experiencing and doing are sometimes valuable if they're uh, enabling something else, if they serve something else. Um, so one question may come back to this, we will come back to this, is, is uh, what, what, what are more ultimate values, if you like? Um, but just to point out that most, valuables, most values are valuable because they enable something else which is more ultimately valuable. 
When we talk about specifically moral values, we mean something morally good, something morally valuable. So justice, for example, is a moral value. Right? Honesty, courage, trustworthiness. Um, And uh, we're talking about here in, in the larger of things, institutions, actions, um, organizations, uh, things in themselves, as well as kind of inner attitude, dispositions, etc. Actually, we'll, we'll come back to that in a second. So, moral. When we talk about moral values, they uh, they pertain to human beings, to to the acts and the personhood or the personalities of human beings. Moral values have to do with human beings. At least that's the way we usually tend to think think of this. Morality has to do with humanity. And so we judge a human being or a human institution or human action, human personality uh, in terms of its moral value, but not, uh, let's say, um, uh, in, in and of itself, you know, um, a lamp. Or, or something like that um, is not in itself moral valuable or, or a, a carpet or something. When um, uh, we talk about moral values that have become kind of um, dispositions of a person or the dominant tendencies they make up uh, the ethos of the person. Remember that word means the, the character, the sort of set of dispositions of a person. When we talk about um, moral, moral values which become dispositions or dominant tendencies or the ethos, that, that's when we use the word virtue. So again, it relies, it um, refers to human beings, their dispositions, their ethos, their, their dominant tendencies. So a couple more points, just by way of introduction, general points. Um, Notice that moral values often depend on non-moral values uh, in one way or another. So if we actually put it in the negative, not to steal, for example, um, uh, or or, or to practice generosity, if we put it in in the positive, um, those moral values depend or assume... um, some value, some goods value of what it is that was stolen or or that might be stolen, right? So the moral value depends on the value of something else. To be generous um, only has a meaning as a moral value if there's something of some worth, of some value that I'm giving. And similarly harming, it's uh, harming another person, it assumes the value of uh, well-being it assumes the value of enough health uh, and uh, to, to do uh, something else valuable, etc. Or that health itself is a value. Um, so that's one observation. And the second is um, one that you've probably heard before, that the moral value of an act depends on the intention and the virtue Uh, of a human being depends on disposition. So, in other words, on intention and disposition, not on result of an action. So you're probably familiar with this from Buddhist teachings on sila. And the 
um, often used example, or an often used example, is two people um, um, stick knives and cut uh, cut into the flesh of another person, uh, or, or two other people, and those two other people whose flesh was cut with knives die. But one person was uh, committing a murder because they wanted, for example, to steal something from this person who they killed with a knife. And the second person was actually a surgeon who was trying to save that person's life. But unfortunately, the surgery wasn't enough to save that person's life. Same result, death by uh, knife, or they died because the surgeon accidentally cut the vein or whatever it was. Um, same result, but morally very different because the intention was very different. So moral values uh, depend on intention, virtues depend on disposition, not just on result. Now, y- you can see already in h- here in some of what I'm saying, if you're paying really close attention, already it's, it raises all, all kinds of questions and complications. So we could say, yeah, but practical wisdom, in other words... A, a, a keen discernment and and sense of what the results might be of certain actions is in itself a virtue. So uh, it's not that results and attention to results are, are um, completely irrelevant. So if we talk about um, virtues uh, as the, the kind of the moral values that become dispositions or part of the ethos of a person and the dominant tendencies, we can talk about, we can list things like empathy, sensitivity, uh, faith, loyalty, um, love, in actually different kinds of love. So actually what Hartman calls love of one's neighbor uh, or love of the remote. Uh, some someone uh, far away and in the future, um, uh, but these are virtues: self-control, courage, um, humility, wisdom, uh, strength, nobility, gentleness, trustworthiness, uh, generosity, the capacity for self-sacrifice. We could go. You know, we could name many more. Um, But these kinds of things are what we're talking about. Actually naming them, uh, listing them, mapping them, is quite a complex um, undertaking, very complex undertaking. Maybe we'll return to that whole problem. But can you sense, even as I just um, list just those, uh, that that limited selection I, I just ran through, can you sense... Um, the effect of the, if you like, the higher development of those virtues, of those qualities, of empathy, of sensitivity, of the different kinds of love, of faith and loyalty and courage and generosity and the capacity for self-sacrifice, wisdom, strength, nobility, etc. Can you sense the ethos of um, that would uh, follow from devoting oneself to the higher development of those qualities, of those virtues. And if I say, uh, if I ask you, um, what does, or what comes up for you 
if you hear the phrase, a beautiful life, a beautiful life, if you hear those words, what is the, uh, if you like, the range of phenomena for which you would even consider the term beautiful actually meaningfully appropriate? talked about beauty in other retreats and series of talks, etc. But does uh, it include the virtues? I used to use the phrase beautiful qualities of heart. But as I said, can you get a sense that a life lived sensitive to and devoted to, uh, sensitive to these, these virtues, sensitive to moral values, keenly sensitive, in the soul, in the heart. A life lived that way, developing that sensitivity, devoted to the cultivation and expression of the virtues, uh, committed to them, standing by them, making them a priority. Can you get a sense, I don't know, can you get a sense right now that that might be um, as beautiful or even more beautiful than other ways in which a life might be considered beautiful? What does it mean to live a beautiful life? And are we called as human beings to the possibility of a beautiful life, of sculpting, of crafting, of making an art of our life into something beautiful? And if so, what is the place? Do the virtues, as we're talking about them now, and this sensitivity to moral value, uh, and the development of all that, and the prioritizing of all that, the commitment to all that, does that have its place in all that? Can you get that sense? Or is it that something else arises for you? This is complicated territory, and this whole conversation on ethics, I realize, is very touchy, very sensitive, and uh, one has to be quite um, careful in wording. I was almost a bit reluctant to even start talking about ethics. Um, but it can be loaded in all kinds of ways. So what arises for you uh, when we think about uh, the meaning of what is a good life? What is, what is it to lead the good life? Ah, I'm living the good life. What does that mean as, as, if we go deeper into the levels of possible meaning and what that might actually look like and be? What does it mean to live and lead a beautiful life? What might it mean and what arises for you just when you hear those words or when I put them in connection with this, uh, with this concept of moral values and virtues? Now some of you who are sort of up on your Buddhist lists um, will immediately perhaps think... Ah, the excuse me. The ten paramitas, or sometimes what's called the ten perfections um, in Theravada Buddhism. Sometimes Mahayana Buddhism, mostly Mahayana Buddhism, lists lists six, and Theravada Buddhism lists ten. So, in the um, are they not? Are those par, uh, paramitas or paramis uh, not virtues? Are we talking about the same thing here? Um, so yes, there's definite overlap. The ten uh, Theravada Buddhist paramis are generosity, sila itself, ethical uh, eth- uh, ethical care. Generosity, sila, renunciation is the third. Um, wisdom, or better, insight, 
is the fourth. Um, energy, uh, sometimes could be translated as courage. Patience, uh, truthfulness, determination, metta, that is loving kindness and equanimity. That's ten. In the Mahayana, they are generosity, sila, patience, energy, samadhi, actually, meaning kind of meditative depth and range and skill, and wisdom or better insight. So there's a definite, um, what should we say, uh, connection, parallel, overlap here. But there's also some important differences, at least in the way that I would like to open out the subject of virtues and, and values and um, their, uh, those, that territory of, of those lists of uh, paramis and paramitas in Buddha Dharma. So firstly, um, there are many more than ten. Uh, when, when, if we open out the consideration of virtue, virtues and values, there are more than ten. Certainly more than six, more than ten. Is one observation. As I said, listing them or even identifying all of them, um, and whether you can, you know, how you break up the list, etc., that becomes quite a project, but certainly more than ten. Second, and uh, also very significant, is the word parami or paramita uh, can be translated in two ways, and they're related. One is, uh, I think, most common is perfection. So prajnaparamita is sometimes the perfection of wisdom, uh, as a translation. Um, so parami means perfection. It also can mean uh, transcendent or transcending, uh, which I'll come back to. But if we just stay with this translation, this, this meaning of paramita as perfection. In the Buddhist teaching, there are ten perfections, there are ten qualities you can perfect. But the word perfection implies uh, that something one can reach the end of a certain development. One can complete uh, a process. That possibility is there to kind of reach, right, I've uh, completely achieved final excellence um, with patience or renunciation or whatever it is, truthfulness, etc. And one of the one of the kind of important points I would like to make about the virtues is that they don't have an end. They're infinitely developable. Um, they, um, they contain and unfold their own beyonds, uh, their own infinite reaches of depth and uh, flourishing and uh, range, etc. Um, so there's a difference there. Um, and related to that is a third difference. So the Buddha, somewhere in the Pali Canon, I, I don't know exactly where, but the Buddha has, uh, it says, all Dhammas converge in the deathless. All Dhammas converge in the deathless. Now, Dhamma is one of those words that can has at least two or three meanings, at least, in, in Buddhist teaching. But one of its meaning is... Um, one of its meanings is teachings itself. So a dhamma is a teaching. So a teaching on generosity, a teaching on the paramitas, a teaching on renunciation, a teaching on uh, equanimity or whatever. Um, it can also mean mental quality. 
Um, so again, the, the quality of patience, the quality of generosity, um, again, like a kind of disposition, if you like. And so this phrase of the Buddha's, all dhammas converge in the deathless, could mean that all uh, the paramis and other qualities of the Buddha's referred to as well, all paramis um, actually serve merely um, to help you transcend to help you transcend the realm of fabrication, the realm of uh, the formation of appearances, the realm of perception and experiences, the realm of birth and death, of life and uh, experience, and transcend that to reach the unfabricated uh, and to end rebirth. So all dhammas converge in the death. They all kind of point towards and lead and have their fruition in this... um, Transcending and escaping from the, uh, the, the the form, the realm of form and appearance, um, and experience and perception. That would be one meaning of this: all dhammas converge in the deathless. In other words, and I've said before, as I've said before, the whole thrust, as I read it, the whole traditional thrust of Pali Canon Buddhism is to get off the wheel of of, of rebirth of life and death, of birth and death, and to, wrong word, but um, melt into, dissolve into, disappear into uh, the unfabricated, beyond all appearance, beyond all experience. And so that the whole, ev- everything else in in the Buddha's teachings, in the Dhamma of the Buddha, serves that end and supports that end and works together. All, all these factors that, Wings of Awakening and the Paramitas and all that, they they serve to support each other in a kind of um, synergistic way that propels the being and aids their release, or Buddha's word, release and escape from samsara, from the wheel of rebirth, into not being reborn again, the, the end of the rebirth of experience into the unfabricated. It could, that phrase of the Buddha's, all dhammas converge in the deathless, could actually have another meaning, um, which I just mentioned just now before coming back to what I was saying earlier. Um, it could mean, the deathless there could mean the dharmakaya. So all dhammas converge in the dharmakaya. Now dharmakaya is a, a, a word with a very interesting history in, in, in Buddha Dharma. Um, and one of its original meanings was really, kaya means a body, like, uh, in a way, um, uh, the, uh, like a body of water. So a collection of, of, uh, of dharmas, dharmakaya, collection of dharmas, mean collection of qualities. Now dharmakaya is an aspect of Buddhahood, it's an aspect of Buddha nature. So that in the first teachings about uh, or exploration of what actually is a Buddha, what is Buddha nature. Dharmakaya um, meant the collection of the Buddha's, uh, the collection of a Buddha's um, qualities, the mental qualities, including their virtues, um, the dispositions of a Buddha. The, 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 you understand? So Dharmakaya meant that. So all Dhammas converge in the deathless could mean all dhammas kind of lead to all, sorry, all paramitas and all teachings um, and trainings lead to this collection of um, qualities that inhere in the Buddha mind, in the Buddha 
being, if you like, in the Buddha nature. But that actually is a more Mahayana idea. So it's probable that when the Buddha um, said all Dhamma's conversion are deathless, um, he was prob- probably, I mean, actually you can spin it either way, but probably, let's take it to mean that uh, for now, that it, that it meant this. They serve to support that traveling of uh, towards transcendence, towards release, escape, um, removal from the uh, realm of fabrication, the realm of appearances, experiences, phenomena, and uh, and rebirth, and, and ending there. So that, again, virtues as such, paramitas as such, in that teaching, take a secondary role. They are for the purpose of serving release. And this... Uh, so that's one way of saying, what, what are they for? What's their worth? What's the worth of, of moral virtues? Um, but as Nikolai Hartman points out, I want to read you a little quote from his, in the way he would read it, um, because it's not such a uh, life trans, it's not at all a life transcending um, philosophy that he espouses. And in some ways he's very not religious. In other ways I think he is religious without realizing it. But um, uh, what is morally good is good in itself. It's not for the purpose of something. It's certainly not for the purpose of removing oneself from the realm of appearances and experiences, perception and phenomena. Um, So what I want want to read to to you is, is this from Nikolai Hartmann. The useful is never the good in the ethical sense. We say that a thing is good for something, but that is not the moral meaning of the good. The latter, the moral meaning of the good, in other words, the latter reveals itself only when one inquires after that for which anything is good. If one traces the for which back to what is no longer good for anything else but is good in itself, one has reached the good in the other sense, which contains its ethical meaning. The morally good is the good in itself. Therefore, not to be good for something else is of its very essence. According to its nature, it is never the useful. Well, I might qualify that a little bit and actually say the morally good is useful. It's useful for other people. It, sometimes it's useful for ourselves. If I'm kind, then maybe people are going to be kind back or there's more chance that they'll be kind back. If I'm kind, my my kindness is often useful to them. And so if I'm generous, my generosity is often useful to them. Uh, and if I'm generous, maybe people will be, some people will be generous back reciprocally or out of appreciation or whatever it is. Um, but what, he's, what I would qualify a little bit what he's saying and saying that in its sort of deeper essence, or there is a dimension, there is a level in which the morally good has, uh, is not just useful for ourselves or for others. It's actually not, it's, it's not good for something. It's not useful. It's just good in itself. And this, in a way to me, relates very much to what it means to uh, live a beautiful life, to lead a beautiful life. It's just something that's good in itself. It has no other purpose than because it's beautiful, because it's good, because it touches the soul in that way.
if we stay with um, Hartman a little bit, and he has a particular kind of ontology that he developed in his philosophy, which is quite interesting and um, very thought-provoking. Um, but one question is about the ontology of moral values. Um, do they have independent, inherent existence? Um, or are they, in a way, created by uh, humanity or by a person or by a culture at a certain time? Are they dependent, contingent in that respect? Now, he was writing at the, in the first half, mostly in the first half of the 20th century, and that book on ethics, I think, is from the 1920s. Um, but already by that time, there was the uh, the uh, awareness in philosophy that, uh, in moral philosophy, that, well, look, ethics, what, what's considered valuable morally, and the whole notion of ethics, and what's ethical and what isn't, um, we only have to look at, at the history of different um, cultures and places uh, and see that it varies. Um, what is regarded as moral, morally valuable varies with time, with place, with culture, with person. So it's quite individual as well. But he makes the point that, yes, agreed, that's obvious, that that's a fact historically, but that need not imply uh, that they don't have independent existence, that moral values don't have independent existence. Because he says that what happens in the realm of moral values is that we tend to have um, movable fashions and a kind of partial blindness that goes with that fashions, that goes with those fashions. So this is akin to when we talked when we talk in the talk in this series on ontology and epistemology, I think, and we were talking about ideas um, for example, of uh, uh, the disco ball, or whatever those things are called, that kind of radiate from different sides. You can't actually see it all at once, and you can't get the light reflecting from it all at once to your eyes. You have to look at it from a certain vantage point, from a certain angle, so you're only seeing part of it. Or when we talked about the different kind of... Uh, ways of creating maps, the cartographic and the polar... Uh, sorry, the um, oh, I've forgotten the name of the other one now. Um, anyway, two different <laughs> sorry, two different ways of creating maps um, that that give different pictures pictures in two dimensions of a really existing three dimensional globe, so that the the truth of things is somehow hard to grasp all at once. Um, but when we look at it, we look at it. Uh, partially or with a partial blindness. So Hartman talks about, I think, what he calls a value firmament. So a value, sort of the, the heavens or the constellations in the sky of values. But he says, we're, we at any time are looking at it as if like through uh, with, a, with a, a small beam of light, like with a torchlight. So our torchlight can only illuminate certain areas of that uh, value firmament, certain values. And when we do that, others slip from our consciousness. We don't notice them, or we relegate them, or we just don't consider them, we're oblivious to them. So, this is quite an interesting uh, ontology and relates to some of what we said before. He does say, um, 
values are still subjective in one sense, in that they they are values only for human beings. So, he, but he says even that doesn't take away from their independent existence, because he points out that um, geometrical laws, for example, the laws of geometry, or mechanical laws, the laws of objects in motion, like footballs and cannonballs and rockets and things, or physiological laws, the laws um, uh, that living organisms uh, kind of are curtailed and abide by, um, these only apply for uh, limited uh, uh, categories of beings. So geometrical laws are for spatial figures, triangles and squares and lines and points and whatever polygons. Uh, uh, Mechanical laws are for solid bodies. Um, uh, Physiological laws are for organisms. So it's subjective in that sense. And moral laws, moral values, are only for humans. So it's subjective in that sense that they're for humans. A moral law doesn't apply to a triangle, for example. Um, So it's limited and subjective in that sense. It's for humans. Um, but that doesn't imply in his thinking that it's therefore uh, that therefore they are therefore created or they can be kind of done away with. They're just relative to certain kinds of being. All those three kinds of four kinds of laws that I numerate are, are each of them relative to uh, a different uh, one of, of four different kinds of beings. Um, and he says that uh, they are actually unconditional. How do we know and perceive values? What's our, how do we get our sense of values? For him, it's not a cognitive process. It's not something we think about rationally and ponder and deduce from logic. Um, so Immanuel Kant is often uh, labelled as someone who has that kind of idea of morality and the approach to morality, wanting to find a kind of rational Basis, but whether that's actually true of Immanuel Kant completely, I, I, I don't, I'm not, I don't think so. Based on the little that I know, I think it would be an oversimplification. But anyway, Harman's point is that we have an intuitive sense and an emotional sense of moral value. It touches something. Um, he would say in the heart or the intuition. I would also say in the soul as well. And. Um, that's how we perceive values and, and we know values. Uh, i come back to that in a sec, in fact. But um, he also says, and again, this, this may be an unfashionable point, again, these days, because of some of what I'd said, in, for the same reasons I... Uh, laid out in in the earlier talks on ethics. But he also says, you know, it's not that all persons have an equal capacity to perceive moral values and to know and sense moral values. There are differences there. Um, There are differences in what has been developed. This person has developed that sense, that intuition, that feeling to perceive and know moral values more than this other person. Or this person has been educated in some way, helped, trained to become more sensitive, to to perceive and and, uh, know uh, moral values. 
Um, and there might be just innate uh, aptitudes. This person just was born with a kind of soul that was sensitive in the realm of moral values, or sensitive to certain values. Um, uh, so there, there are there are differences there, and, and that has to be acknowledged. Again, that might be a sort of um, somehow taboo thing to say, but he says actually it's just like insight into mathematics or the truths of mathematics or mathematical laws. They are true. They are independent of whether two people, A and B, can both uh, grasp that mathematical law. Perhaps person A has a particular aptitude with mathematics. Perhaps they have particular training with mathematics. And they can read um, some mathematical equation or some mathematical formula or postulate or truth and actually grasp it, understand it, know it, sense it, sense its validity. And person B just is not, uh, doesn't have that mathematical sensibility in their, in their mind, in their soul, or they haven't been educated in that way. So he says it's just like that. It's the same with moral values. And he says something further that, um, and this, this again is very interesting, I think, in terms of, as I said, link all this up to soul and soul making. So as you're listening to this, there's, there's partly like all its implications for how we consider, uh, for our implications for our consideration, our approach to ethics. And then there's also our consideration, how it impacts and what it implies uh, for our consideration of souls and soul making and all that. So further thing he says is that um, values make the person the person doesn't make the value. So again, that has uh, this is still still in the area of talking about what's their ontological status. Do they have independent existence, or are they merely created um, by the person or by a culture? He says values make the person, not vice versa. And he gives as a sort of um, evidence for that the fact that when we feel guilt, we're actually feeling or sensing our own failure to live up to our uh, values, to live up to our ideal self, if you like. And to him, this implies the a, a priority, uh, a priori nature of values. In other words, that they are... They come first. Values make the person. So a person has these values that are um, that exist in the value phone. These ones are important to them. They have this kind of sensitivity to these values, less so to these values. And that sensitivity, derived from or in relationship to the values, makes the person, it shapes the personality, as opposed to the person shaping shaping. Um, and creating the values. So, that's in, I think that's a very interesting thought. Um, to me, it's a little bit one-sided as a as a explanation, postulation. I don't a postulate. I don't really. I'm not entirely convinced by that. Um, and in fact, there's quite a lot in Hartman that I'm not. Uh, I'm not entirely convinced by Aquino, but I still find it very touching and very beautiful and very thought-provoking. Um, as a philosopher. 
So there might uh, more be uh, a consideration of dependent origination and the various factors that contribute to make the person and contribute to make the values which they uh, are sensitive to, etc. So yes, we could say uh, the person uh, makes the values, absolutely, um, and the culture makes the values, and the culture makes the person who makes the values, and uh, in indirect and direct ways, and reactive ways, and proactive ways, and um, consonant ways, and dissonant ways, in opposition, in concurrence, etc. But we can also say that the values make the person, along, along with Hartman. Or at least we can say, again, if we take one of the principles of soul-making, that Okay, we don't have to decide on a uh, an ultimate truth here, but we can entertain the idea, entertain the logos, put it in the soul for a while, for example, and see what it does if we entertain the idea that values make the person. The values kind of exist um, in some independent way, and at some level where we can't completely grasp all that there is to know about them, their whole range, how they relate to each other, um, their hierarchy. We can't grasp all that. We get a one-sided, movable sense of them. But we can entertain the idea for a while, not as an ultimate truth, but entertain the idea that they do exist in that way. Uh, not as a final position, but we, we entertain that. We play with that idea in a way that becomes powerful for the soul. And I think that idea that values make the person rather than the other way around, um, if we lean that way for a while, that there could be a lot of soul-making coming out of that. I don't know if you can sense that as I'm, as I'm mentioning it right now. And that also it um, has many implications for our uh, our ethical life and again how we approach, how we consider ethics, um, what we what we deem as important as we when we approach ethical situations and the very lens in which we see all that. But as I say, he was writing in the early twentieth century, and um, with the rise of modernism. Um, and certainly into into sort of so-called postmodernism, there was perhaps I think generally speaking a uh, a kind of waning of the interest in values and moral values as a sort of way of understanding ethics, and uh, especially with postmodernism, the sense of like, well, how can you claim? As we said, how can you claim that they have independent objective existence because nothing does, etc. Everything's culturally con conditioned. And also co corollary waning um, and uh, lack of interest and lack of um, esteem of the uh, notion of virtues and that kind of idea uh, about humanity and, and a way of approaching ethics. And again, in a way, um, because I, for myself, put uh, this, these ideas about values and virtues into the realm of uh, the area, the, the larger realm of what I might call religious sensibility, um, in the larger sense. 
And so, because that wanes too very much with modernism and postmodernism, you, you, part of that is a disennobling, uh, a removal uh, and a depletion of the potential of um, what can serve to and be part of uh, a sense of nobility in a human beings. That's also is one of the loss losses of modernism through modernism and postmodernism modernity and postmodernity. That that whole idea is too close to the noble and the religious, etc., that uh, it, it goes out of fashion. And uh, I want to read you something from Alistair MacIntyre as well in this, in this regard. Um, so he's also uh, commenting on on this development through modernity. And um, so he writes, and this is again from his book After After Virtue, um, without allusion to the place that justice and injustice, courage and cowardice play in human life, very little will be genuinely explicable. It follows that many of the explanatory projects of the modern social sciences a methodological canon of which is the separation of, quote, the facts, close quote, from all evaluation, are bound to fail. So in other words, this idea, I can separate the facts out from any value, uh, any evaluative statements or lenses I bring bring in uh, to to bear on those facts. That's that's an idea you'll recognise when we talked about the history of science, and classical science, that's a, that's a sort of axiomatic principle of the, scientific, of the classical scientific method, or even the modern scientific method, um, that one, one doesn't, one tries to remove any kind of evaluation or evaluative tendency that will distort or sully or subjectivize um, the objective facts, so-called facts. So that with modernity, there's the rise of this classical scientific method, and that spreads to other domains other than the sort of, um, I don't know what you'd call them, the, the, the core sciences of physics and chemistry and biology and all that, into the modern social sciences. So people try and apply that same kind of um, pared down, austere, so-called objective scientific method to social sciences like sociology and psychology and uh, others. Um, but but he's saying, actually, if you take out notions of justice, injustice, courage, cowardice, in other words, values and virtues, actually it's very hard to explain anything with just these so-called facts. For the fact that someone was or failed to be courageous or just, he writes, cannot be recognised as a fact by those who accept that methodological canon uh, based on uh, classical science and its uh, belief in, in, in the possibility of total objectivity. Do you understand? So that, that whole waning of the interest and the unesteeming, the progressive unesteeming of, um, not, not completely, but for the most part, um, of, of that whole realm uh, and interest in, in values, moral values and virtues, actually goes with modernity to a certain extent. Because it's 
intrinsically evaluative. And that's what we're trying to get rid of. Um, if we go back to this question of how do we uh, perceive values, and again, it's, it's actually still related to their uh, perceiving moral values and still relating to their ontological status. Um, in the English translation of, uh, of Nikolai Hartmann's book, there's, I think, a very good introduction by a guy called Andreas Kinnegy. And, um, and he writes a couple of things which I think are worth uh, just kind of running by you, uh, quoting, if I can find them. Um, let's see. So, again, how do we perceive values? How do we come to know them? He writes, it is impossible to observe values empirically. In other words, you can't see a value itself. You only see, only acts, things, and events are perceived empirically, perceived with the senses. So only acts, things, and events are perceived. You can't see a value itself. You can't sense it directly. To know the value of what is observed empirically is possible only if one has already comprehended the relevant value in abstracto, in the abstract of what is observed, and can use that knowledge as a standard to assess what has been realized. Knowledge of values is a priori knowledge. A priori. In other words, uh, like, like knowledge of mathematical and logical being. In other words, we just have an intuitive knowledge of values. Uh, they as a kind of abstract knowledge, we have a sense of what's good, what's kind. It's not like we see certain acts. We see a hundred acts and then we deduce from those different hundred acts. Ah, I see. So I make the conclusion that generosity is this. I deduce from those empirical observations of a hundred acts of different people in different situations or myself. Then I make a conclusion of what constitutes generosity or kindness or courage. We have, he says, uh, an a priori knowledge, an intuitive, instinctive, inbuilt knowledge that corresponds to their, in the subjective domain, corresponds to their objective, independent existence. And it's that uh, that, that we measure an observed, em empirically observed act. We measure its correspondence with our intuitive sense, whether it tallies, whether it's congruent, whether it chimes with and fits our intuitive a priori sense of, of uh, this or that value. And again, uh, just to repeat what you said before, so not everyone has the same capacity to sense values. Uh, and not everyone's capacity is equally well developed. Uh, so Hartman writes, there are such things as education and lack of education of the sense of values, talent and lack of talent for the discernment of them. Uh, it is here just as it is with mathematical insight, as I said before. Not everyone is capable of it. Not everyone has the eye, the ethical maturity, the spiritual level for seeing the situation as it is. Nevertheless, the universality, necessity, and objectivity of the valuational judgment hold good in abstracto. For this universality does not at all mean that everyone is capable of the valuational insight in question. It only means that whoever is capable of it, that is, whoever, whoever spiritually gets hold of its meaning, must necessarily feel and judge thus, and not otherwise. Um, 
And just read a little more of this, because he writes this as Kinnegan now. He says, value blindness is quite a common phenomenon. So a sense of just, or rather, a condition of just being insensitive to certain values. Um, In extreme cases, it brings about a complete loss of meaning of life in the world. Um, He who stolidly passes by men and their fates, he whom the staggering does not stagger, nor the exalted exalt, for him life is in vain, he has no part of it. The world must be meaningless and life senseless to one who has no capacity to perceive the sense of life's relationships, the inexhaustible significance of persons and situations or correlations and events. The outward emptiness and monotony of his life are the reflex of his inner emptiness and his moral blindness. The real world in which he exists, the stream of human life which bears him up and carries him along, is not without manifold wealth of content. His poverty amidst abundance is due to his own failure to appreciate life. Hence, for the moral nature of man there is, besides the narrow actuality of action and ought to do, so we ought, uh, we ought to act on, uh, in line with certain virtues or moral values, For the moral nature of man, there is a second requirement, to participate in the fullness of life, to be receptive to the significant, to lie open to whatever has meaning and value. Um, So I find that a beautiful passage, but and very important passage, but one of the points there is that it's possible to to be value blind. And again, I want to come back to that later. But the uh, the sense of seeing values, of perceiving them, of intuiting them, um, is is what he calls what's I mean, philosophical terms a priori, it's an a priori uh, judgment. And one more thing from Hartman while we're there, um, if I can find it, um, yeah. So. When he considers, like in, he says there's something very interesting about the human capacity for moral action, for moral sensibility, to sense moral values and uh, to um, bring them to bear and express them in one's life and to choose that way. And so he says he's adopting um, a certain framework of the world says man okay let's say human being excuse me in comparison with the whole of the cosmos is a speck of dust an ephemeral a negligible phenomenon so there's a certain um, cosmological context of which man in in the in the scope of things of the vast reaches of the universe and the vast spans of time in the universe is really just an insignificant little speck. So the interesting thing about, or one of the interesting things about ethics and humanity is, uh, um, again, excuse the gender-biased language he's writing back then, um, man, a vanishing quantity in the universe, is still in his own way stronger than it. He is the vehicle of a higher principle. 
He is the creator of a reality which possesses significance and value. He transmits to the real world a higher worth. Nature is bound down to its own laws. Man alone, humanity alone, carries in himself a higher law, whereby he, or more correctly, the law through him, creates in the world, or from non-being, from non-existence, brings forth into being, into existence, that which was prefigured in its ideality. In other words, these ideals of moral values and virtues. That despite being... um, uh, insignificant in the context of, of one's a- actual uh, existence in, in the vast spans of space and time in the universe, human beings can, can do this thing where they can um, axio- axiologically, in, in other words ethically, they can, uh, in terms of values, they can do something uh, that's extremely significant. We may name this rehabilitation of man the miracle of the ethical phenomenon. It is the sublime in him, that which very verily lifts him up above his own mere existence in the world. So yes, physically and in terms of the transience of our existence, um, we're ephemeral and uh, insignificant and small in the context of the of the large universe. But there's something amazing that we can do, is bring forth from this kind of ideal realm of values something from non-existence into existence, which, other than through us, cannot come into existence. So again... I don't know how this, how all this lands, or how it really lands in your soul. I don't mean just whether you kind of agree or not agree, and there's, as I said, many complications, some of which we'll pick up on and go into later. But I really mean in the soul, in the heart, how does all this land? I've been talking quite generally now. But as I asked before, can you get a sense, perhaps, I don't know if you share this sense that a devotion to cultivating uh, virtues, to expressing them in one's life, to standing in them and standing by them and standing up for them, a commitment to them, a prioritizing of them, that that would constitute and form and be an essential part, perhaps the essential part, in uh, what we might call a beautiful life. And as such might be something uh, for which we could say, in soul-making Dharma terms, there is there is a telos, there is a human telos. We are called to that. Yes, each in our individual particular ways that we we create, discover what it is for me or you as a unique individual with our own, um, with our own soul, if you like, to uh, what kind of beautiful life there. What's the flavour of that beautiful life? But can you get... I don't know if you share that sense of the the beauty of this, the nobility of it, the calling of it, the possible uh, um, logos that might regard that as a telos. This is what we're called towards. We're called towards a beautiful life, living a beautiful life, creating 
a beautiful life, and that the place of virtue in that and this um, is central. If we um, look into the etymology of that word virtue, I think it's quite interesting. Um, so, the word itself is virtue is from the Latin virtus, which means manliness, um, but. I would let's let's play with that a little bit and actually say hu- humanity, um, i.e., being fully human in non-gender biased language. Um, so to be to to uh, care for the virtues is to become uh, fully human. The more we care for the virtues, the more fully human we become. And if I don't, am I am I actually a human being? I might have DNA and. I might have that form and two ears and a nose and eyes and a liver and a spleen and whatever. Am I human just because, you know? Um, so it's related to that word, to, to being fully human. Again, we could regard it more telistically, if that's the uh, adverb. And uh, as, as, a, as a movement, something we're called towards. We're called towards our full humanity and the virtues are, are perhaps an integral part of that. It's also related to to the word uh, courage. Actually, the word in Pali, virya, which can be translated as energy, but can also be translated as courage, also has a relationship with the Latin, I think, uh, vir, man. Um, so it's related to courage, to being fully human. Um, virtuous also uh, means efficacious and potent. That's a kind of archaic meaning. Um, and virtual is from the Latin virtualis, which means effective. Um, also from uh, from vir, it's root in vir, which means man. So there's something about, um, it's not when we can come back to this point uh, shortly, hopefully, but when we consider virtue, it's also our, our efficacy, our potency, how efficacious our being and action and speech and ethos in the world are is part of what it means to have virtue. We also have this word in English virtuoso, um, and it's also from from the root from the Latin via uh, man. Uh, but to me, that gives the whole sense of virtue. Uh, virtuoso gives the whole sense of this when we consider and open up this, uh, open up for our soul, uh, the soul meaning, the soul sense of of this area. Uh, of, of virtues, um, it also implies virtuoso implies something. There's a skill and art here. So this whole consideration of virtue, of living a virtuous life, of living a beautiful life, of the sensibility and commitment to uh, moral values, etc. Uh, it's there's something of skill and art in that. And in fact, um, virtue or virtue, sometimes with an I, sometimes with an R, is a taste or love for works of fine art, um, a connoisseurship, um, uh, and also the quality of being rare or beautiful. So can you, can you, can you sense how, how, how the, kind of different etymo- the different etymological components here actually feed in to organically, perhaps, to, to filling out a richness uh, and multidimensionality and multidirectionality even of, of what we mean here. And all these words are etymologically tied together. Um, 
actually, I don't want to stop there. there was, there's a guy called, I think his name's Paul Kugler. Kugler is his second name, K-U-G-L-E-R. I think his first name's Paul. Yes, Paul Kugler. And he wrote a short book called The Alchemy of Discourse, um, I don't know, 20 years ago or so. And he talks in that book, he picks up on a, th- a piece of research that Jung did early in his career on... Um, It's related to archetypes, but it's to do with phonetic similarities, between phonetic relationships between words, which is different than etymological uh, relations. Etymology means actually you can trace trace these different words like virtue and virtuous and virtuoso and virtual and etc. You can trace them back to a common root and trace how that meaning uh, comes out of that common root in history over time. But Paul Kugler, following this piece of research that Jung did, and I think Jung never really went back to it, and as far as I know, no one else has really gone back to it and explored it and filled it out, and I think there's a lot of potential here, and that's partly why I'm mentioning it. But basically, words are connected not just etymologically, but phonetically. In other words, by the a relationship of, of similar sound. So he gives examples of... Um, it's actually quite interesting, Jung's original piece of research. We don't have time to go into that right now. But he gives, um, for example, words that are not etymologically related. So, carnation, the flower, carnal, and carnage, for example. Um, and what he's saying is, in Jungian terms, the unconscious... Uh, puts those words together, it associates them together, they kind of touch the soul um, in in similar ways, or they, hearing one word actually ignites for the soul a kind of intuitive, uh, maybe dim association or sense of those other words through the sound. It's not related through the etymology, through the meaning, but through the sound. So the words have very different meanings, but they're related through... Uh, or there's a relationship through sound that uh, he says stimulates in the unconscious um, a kind of archetypal complex through which all those words are related. And so that's one example. He gives a few. Another might be um, actually he talks quite interesting. He writes quite interestingly about um, the word. Uh, this is in Latin now, but it's like liberalitas, generosity, liberatio. Uh, where we get our, our word liberation from, setting free, deliverance. Liberi in Latin, which is children. Um, uh, libet, which is it is pleasing, or I desire, or I want, so it's related to desire. So we've um, libid, libido, which we have, um, so lustfulness, or libido, desire. Um, what else? Uh, libation. Uh, to pour or to make an offering. Um, Libitina, which is a burial goddess, and library, a librarian, a case for books. He's saying all those words, through the co- through the sound commonality, the relationship of sound, a lot of them don't seem to have anything to do with each other, but he says they point to a common archetypal complex also related to Dionysus. So libido, um, d- desire, and freedom, uh, 
etc. And libation, the drinking, you know, the, the god um, Dionysus is Bacchus, the Greek god Bacchus, etc. is the god of wine. Um, Dionysus has a relationship with death, that libitina. And curiously, you think, oh, books, what does that have to do with it? Actually, Bacchus is, we get our word book from the word Bacchus. Um, so anyway, these words are phonetically related and, uh, and or phonologically related and, and they um, speak to the soul that way. They, they trigger each other or they're related to each other, they're constellated together, they're ignited together for the soul. So I'm partly mentioning that because um, it seems to me no one else has really picked up on that line of research. It's just a short book by Cool Kugler. Maybe someone hearing this at some point will like to um, pursue in a small way or a larger way that kind of uh, line of inquiry and exploration in terms of soul-making. That's why I explained all that. But if we go back to this word virtue and um, so we talked about the etymology. What about um, phonetic uh, relationships, or what's phonologically, uh, or perhaps archetypally tied to the word virtue? Maybe the word vertical. It's a different root, or vertex. They're both from the Latin vertex, which means to turn around, um, as like around a point, um, or, or or a place where. Uh, planes or lines meet, or in astronomy it's a point in the sky towards which uh, a star stream appears to move, the, the vertex. And vertical and upright, and so being upright is the name of Reb Anderson's book, I think, on ethics. Um, so uprightness and virtue and all that. But there's um, rich, rich uh, meanings and phonetic relationships in, in that word virtue. Really what I'm after here is the soul filling out for the soul, amplifying for the soul the, um, the range, the meaning, the dimensionality of those words, uh, of that word virtue, both through etymology and through this um, phonetic correspondence or association for the soul. And it's interesting, again, uh, I'm going to read again something from Alistair McIntyre here. When we, what we actually think virtues are in terms of our, again talking about our anthropology, what's our take on human nature? So he makes a very interesting point uh, regarding if we consider human beings as innately kind of selfish, then that places the whole idea of virtues and the whole teaching of virtues in a certain light relative to that selfishness. If we think human beings are um, naturally, or deep down they are good, their true nature is good, then that casts a different light on what the virtues are. So I'm going to read the passage anyway, um, if I can find it. Um, So, actually, leading up to it, he, he, he talks about a specific, what he considers to be the Aristotelian understanding of virtue, but let's, let's leave that for now, and um, just take it from 
where he leaves that off and says, he writes, one distinctively new way to open, one distinctively new way open to understand the virtues once they have been severed from their traditional context in thought and practice is as dispositions related in either of two alternative ways to the psychology of that newly invented social institution, the individual. Okay, so basically saying, look, in classical times, in the time of Aristotle, so there was a very different understanding of things. The, the social context, the structure of society was very different, and the whole notion of virtue was bound up with that, um, in, a, in, in many ways, simpler society. And the idea of the individual was also very different, although the self sense as I've pointed out, was, was very different. This is now the, uh, that whole traditional context is gone, and we've got this new prominence of this new notion, a new sense of ourselves in, in, as individuals, as selves, um, in this kind of modern sense that we feel intuitively. It's not just an idea. So he writes, either the virtues, or some of them, could be understood as expressions of the natural passions of the individual, or they, or some of them, could be understood as dispositions necessary to curb and to limit the destructive effect of some of those natural passions. And then he continues, It was in the 17th and 18th centuries that morality came generally to be understood as offering a solution to the problems posed by human egoism, and the content of morality came to be largely equated with altruism. Okay, so that you don't find that in Aristotle, for example, this idea of morality and altruism going kind of somehow being almost synonymous. So you've got this idea that human beings are there's this dangerous human ego, and that idea rises to the fore, and then and with it this idea of morality and altruism. He continues, for it was in that same period that men came to be thought of as in some dangerous measure egoistic by nature. Um, I wonder if that's true in the East. Um, uh, so it's, I, don't, I don't know, I have no idea, but it's interesting if you read Shantideva, who wrote in the 8th century um, in his Bodhicaryatara, uh, the Bodhisattva way of life, or however you want to tra- translate it, um, it's, it's there a little bit, this kind of um, uh, intense suspicion of the human tendency uh, of of the self sense in the human being of and, and of egotism and selfishness. Therefore, you don't find it as far as I I don't really find it in the Pali Canon. The Buddha doesn't really talks about self, but not really um, in this kind of way we've come almost to associate this danger of uh, uh, egotism and um, selfishness there. And nor I. As far as I'm aware, do do you read it in Nagarjuna, who was writing in, let's say, the second century um, of the Common Era? Um, so, don't know if it's true in the East, but he, Alistair MacIntyre is saying that about the West, um, the 17th and 18th centuries. And he writes, And it's only once we think of mankind as by nature dangerously egoistic that altruism becomes at once socially necessary and yet apparently impossible, and if if and when it occurs, inexplicable. So the whole question of what are the virtues? Are they natural things that um, are, are, if you like, our true nature? 
that just need to be uh, uh, supported and encouraged and nourished and expressed? Or are they rather um, qualities and elements of being that we can train and cultivate that actually, uh, as he says, curb and limit our natural, our more natural passions, dispositions, which are more selfish and egoistical. So that distinction, or that those two possibilities, mirror distinctions I think you can sometimes hear in or read in Theravadan Dharma, where, for instance, in the Pali Canon, the Buddha often talks about um, three kilesas as being kind of natural to human beings, greed, aversion, and delusion. And... Um, much less does he talk about Buddha nature and your intrinsic goodness and, and that kind of thing, which we hear in the Mahayana, and even more so in, uh, in fact, in a sort of modern Western spin on Mahayana teachings about Buddha nature. And this is very contemporary. Again, is it a response, a reaction to the pain, the affliction of the pandemic, of inner critic, etc., that we need to kind of promulgate and promote teachings that uh, teach us about our inner goodness, uh, our natural, deep-down inner goodness, versus teachings on original sin, or that basically you're just a a fountain of three kilesas, and you have to, that's kind of your basic nature, uh, which needs to be, um, need to be trained out of. So, that's kind of interesting as, as to the nature of the virtues and, and how that relates to our, again, our anthropology, basically, our, our, our uh, framing and view of what a human being is. So either way, though, we could, we could see them either way. Uh, in either of the, We could see what the virtues are in relation to human nature in either of those ways. And either way can be, uh, can be supportive of our sila, and our ethical consideration, and can also be soul-making. So from a soul-making Dharma perspective, it actually doesn't matter too much. There'll probably be more of a leaning in time towards this intrinsic nature and it's uh, related to the, the divinity, etc. But actually, it can go either way. Um, but again, I, I want to just linger with the sense of I hope you get the sense that it's, this is an abstract. How how important and how um, beautiful uh, this notion of the virtues is, and how beautiful they are, and what that has to do with leading uh, a beautiful life, and our our invitation, our calling to our telos, uh, our destiny, if you like, our possible destiny, if we choose it, if we support it towards. Um, a really beautiful life, a profoundly and widely beautiful life. Plato in his Crito says, if you cannot live virtuously, there is nothing to be gained by staying alive. Life itself has no value for you. If you cannot live virtuously, there is nothing to be gained by staying alive. Life itself has no value for you. And Socrates uh, somewhere or other said, a person ought not to consider their chance of living or dying. They ought only to consider on a given occasion whether they are doing right or wrong. Strong teachings, strong words. 
a person ought not to consider their chance of living or dying. They ought only to consider on a given con- given occasion whether they are, they are doing right or wrong. Again, I'm sure the Buddha somewhere or other says, better, better one day lived with sila, with moral uh, virtue and uprightness, than a hundred years lived unethically without sila. So, I don't know, can you get a sense of the, the soul's love of uh, moral values? And perhaps the soul's telos, uh, our telos as human beings, our destiny, our calling, that which towards, we are, uh, towards which we are invited. The magnetic pull which we are potentially growing towards. We can just care for that growth. Um, some of, I can't remember if I've talked about him before, but there was a German theologian called. Um, well, actually, let me preface that. Um, so, in the context of talking about ethics, there are different. There are all kinds of um, systems of moral philosophy, ethical philosophy, all kinds of ways we can consider or approach the whole realm of ethics in our lives and how how we think about it, how we look at it, what we consider a priority or important, all that. And, of course, we tend to think about efficacy. So, what's the result of a certain um, action? Um, to like, What's the result of my kindness or generosity? Um, and... Uh, in regard to situations like climate change, etc., we often tend to think about, well, what's going to make a difference? Of course, that's really important, the efficacy. But in a way, that's only, let's say, half of ethics. Um, And the soul's uh, love of values, love of virtues, the soul's, as I said, this telos, uh, its calling, its uh, invitation uh, to, to become fully human, to live that beauty um, is perhaps the other half. So you have this two, this kind of balance. I mean, there's other possibilities as well, of course, but you have this balance of efficacy and virtue. And I can't remember if I've talked about it before in other talks, but there was a German theologian, theologian a Lutheran theologian uh, called <coughs> Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and uh, he was born uh, near the beginning of the 20th century. And he lived in Germany, and he criticized outspokenly the uh, Nazi um, philosophy and program and um, what they implemented and their acts and um, all, all of that, what was going on in Nazi Germany. And he remained completely outspoken in his criticism. He would not shut up. And he knew what this would cost him, uh, that he would probably pay for it with his life. He could have, along with so many others, kept quiet. Um, But he chose to just keep telling uh, the truth as he saw it. Standing in, standing by, standing for moral values. Living, creating virtue committed to it, prioritizing it, more important as Socrates and Plato than life or death. Was his speaking 
almost a lone voice, not quite, but almost a lone voice in Germany, was that ever going to change things? Was his speaking going to topple the Nazi regime? Were they going to say, oh, yeah, Dietrich, you're right. <laughs> yeah, you're, of course, how stupid we are. We'll change our ways. That outspokenness, that courage, that commitment, that firmness, that resolve, that purity, that um, boldness, wasn't going to change things. He wasn't an idiot. Unlikely to change things, pretty unlikely, and much more likely uh, was that it would cost him his life. So, unlikely it was going to change things, but was it beautiful? His outspokenness, his courage, his speaking out, his standing in and for moral value, the good. Was it beautiful? Was it noble? Was it brave? Was it inspiring? Does it remain a model to be respected and honoured and aspired to that he chose and acted and spoke as he did back then, even at the cost of his own life? And in the end, that's what happened. In 1945, they hung him in a basement with six other people, I don't know, and, and hung him from a meat hook and executed him, basically. Doing the right thing, no matter what. Virtue over ethics, sometimes. Sorry, virtue over efficacy, sometimes. Virtue over efficacy. And I, um, again, I can't remember if I've... Um, <coughs> given this example in a talk before, but um, on the Titanic ship when it was sinking and uh, <coughs> the, uh, there weren't enough lifeboats for everyone on the ship, so they, I think men, uh, so women and children, actually rich women and children got priority and then the remaining women and children got priority and there were uh, women and children and some men um, who were left on the ship sinking, tilting, going down into the icy waters, no lifeboats left, abandoned, uh, knowing they were going to die. And they um, started singing hymns, um, hymns to God, hymns in praise of God. And what's the point? What's the point? Um... But to me, there's uh, something uh, beautiful there for the soul. Um, there's something uh, noble uh, there, and I, I would say virtue and value there for the soul. So these, uh, you know, they're going to die anyway. So what's the point? Um, in in the uh, talks, an ecology of love, I. I think I talked, I can't remember what I called them, but there is a kind of activism that's very focused on practical results. And so that's really, really important as a style of activism. Then there's another kind of activism that has to do with really doing the right thing, or standing up for the right thing, or saying the right thing. Um, and it may not have... Uh, it, it's not so much focused on efficacy, and it might be more focused on the soul sense of things. So one participates in an action or one 
um, stands up for something or takes a risk for something, and it's really for the for the soul sense for the and related to that is is this doing the right thing and virtue, even if it doesn't um, lead effectively if it's um, if its effect is is more limited one's doing it for soul sake so to speak. Um, now virtue and soul are not always synonymous there. Um, but there's a relationship. So just as on the on the Titanic sinking, there's something that one does regardless of the outcome. But this, these two kind of um, perspectives on ethics, let's call them virtue, uh, the virtue perspective of virtues and the perspective of efficacy, they're, they're not separate. They're two ends of a spectrum, if you like, of activism and ethical conception. Um... So consideration and respect for um, virtue, as I said, and as the Makata's pointing out, it's almost completely dwindled and been eclipsed by uh, by the latter uh, approach, conception in terms of efficacy in our modern culture's worldview and its anthropology. But they're, in a way, they're they're important pieces of a larger jigsaw, I would say. Um, so it might be that in, in our, at our current, for, for various reasons, but our, at our current point in history and in our culture and the wider society, there's a, a really strong case to be made for the resurrection of a kind of consideration of virtue as something, uh, virtues as something quite, pr- as a primary consideration in our relationship with ethics and choice and uh, what's happening. Um so sometimes, for example, in relation to climate change, there are many people who are actually involved in activism or involved in research on climate change and species loss and environmental de- degradation. And actually right there with, with current scientific data and facts and looking at the trends, some of them feel like we've already gone off the ed- edge of a cliff here and um, uh, what's the point? Is is a question that arises. What's the point? Um, humanity is already likely tied in to um, three, four degrees uh, rise in in temperature, almost no matter what. Um, and the likelihood of us curbing collectively, us curbing our carbon emissions or addressing some of these issues, is is um, relatively slim. Now, sometimes we can get a bit too dualistic with regard to something like climate change or species loss, as if it's a bit black and white. Um, so, as um, someone I was talking to pointed out, well, three degrees warming is uh, a lot better than eight degrees warming, and two degrees is better than three degrees. So, it's never like there's a cliff beyond which everything becomes completely pointless. Um, there's gradations there of catastrophe, if you like. Um, and sometimes we can just get into, in the face, looking closely at the um, scientific data and the uh, the science of it, and and also at the larger picture of socioeconomic trends. Uh, one can be very despairing and regard it and fall into a kind of black and white thinking. Um, but actually, it's it's more gradated, and two degrees is definitely better than three degrees. One point five degrees centigrade rise is definitely better than two degrees. Three degrees is way better than eight degrees, etc. Um, all of which are going to be pretty hairy, anyway. 
at least pretty hairy. But but there's there's another consideration here in, in terms of what's the point, and this has more to do with doing the right thing, uh, which which in other words is doing um, what is virtuous or doing resonating with choosing with um, aligning oneself with um, what has moral value. And in that kind of relationship, so even when um, if we do so, we're going off the edge of a cliff, what's the point? We're all going down with the Titanic or whatever it is. Um, it's a tragic situation. Nothing can be redeemed, whichever situation we're talking about. This this virtue ethics, this uh, idea of doing the right thing regardless, it introduces, um, if you like, another dimension that it's referred to other than the efficacy of actions, other than the practical, as well as the practical um, outflow and results and it's as I said it starts to be referred or invites consideration of um, what we might call ideal values and I want to come back to that word ideal um, of divinity of the ethos of human beauty and potential and this invitation to the fully human being etc it invites that whole other dimension regardless of of the actual practical result. Okay, can you, I, hope, I hope you're listening with your soul and, and and listening for the implications for your soul in all this. Um, now, if we just stay with this a little longer, I think there is a case also for um, not just where where. Uh, it's a hopeless case where there's sort of uh, whatever efficacy we can achieve in regard to some situation is um, very limited and not at all what we would want. Not only then, but also in cases where um, the efficacy is just uncertain um, or complex. So exactly uh, when or where the, uh, the efficacy um, of our action or of our choices is uncertain or appears so diluted in the web of conditions um, or of the effects of others' actions and choices. So, for example, something like climate change. So what's the point of me choosing this or that uh, You know, difficult choice of renouncing whatever it is, um, eating meat or flying too much or whatever. What's the point of me doing that if, you know, all these other people are just going ahead? And anyway, my flight, the flight's going anyway, whatever, even if I don't get on it, the contribution of my emissions in the totality, I can't trace it as we as we outlined in one of the previous talks on ethics, I can't actually trace my exact carbon emissions and what exact result that will have, unlike if I... Um, shoot someone with a gun, it's very obviously me that did that. So exactly these situations where the efficacy of our actions is uncertain, of our choices, um, or, or is diluted in the whole complex web of conditions or of the effects of other actions, that might be also where the virtues aspect should be more prominent um, in our thinking and a guide to our moral choices. So we can get so if we if we just think in terms of efficacy, think, yeah, the flight's going anyway. Well, yeah, well, the, the, you know, I only ate the, a little section of the, the 
you know, the butt of that cow or whatever, uh, the cow is going to be slaughtered anyway, etc. Um, there's other, there's a whole other side to this, and that's 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 the the, the virtue perspective. Um, so efficacy and virtue, and we should point out as well. And like I said, there are other considerations as well, but let's just keep it at those two for now. Um, too much emphasis on virtue over and above efficacy of action, and that wouldn't be a virtue, right? If I'm so um, unconcerned and unattuned to what has potential efficacy, and I'm just focused on my own um, sense of virtue, that's um, going to be... Uh, not very virtuous. That itself constitutes uh, a kind of failing in terms of a virtue. It's not. It's not a moral value to do that. So, for example, um, someone might be extremely courageous in some situation. Um, I don't know. Let's say soldiers at war defending something, and a soldier is extremely courageous, um, doing something, gets themselves shot and killed, or whatever, or maybe. But not for any good purpose. It doesn't. It doesn't help his fellow soldiers. It doesn't um, protect anyone else. It doesn't have any effect in the larger scheme of things. They've just been. They've just done something um, extremely courageous or brave without any consideration of the relative efficacy and how that weighs up um, in in the larger equation. And if if there were other choices where efficacy were, uh, there was some efficacy of an action. Then doing that extremely courageous action without efficacy. I don't even know if it qualifies as being courageous. It's not a virtue. Okay, Too much emphasis on virtue over and above efficacy is itself not a virtue. Um, let's say a couple more things for now. Um, Hartman uh, makes a point that when we act virtuously, when we act in line with a moral value or aligned with or, or um, devoted to a moral value, we're actually not concerned with ourselves, so to speak. We are concerned with um, how, how that affects another person. So my kindness towards someone else is for that other person. I'm not thinking about me and kindness or generosity. I'm not thinking about me and how it affects me. I'm thinking about um, about them and the effect on them. Um, but I wonder whether it's that simple, especially whether when we get uh, conscious of this whole area or when we've been exposed to certain teachings. So I wonder whether ethical actions and intentions can actually reg- be regarded as, as, as kind of double intentions, having a double intentionality, uh, contrary to what Nikolai Hartman says. So they are aimed at the good of another, or the good for another. My kindness, my generosity, my concern, my, my justice, uh, my dispensing of justice, if, if I'm in that position, is aimed definitely at the good of another, but also at one's own virtue, at one's own... it. it it's um, uh, resonant with and sensitive to um, 
one's own sense of virtue, one's own building of virtue, one's own telos as a human being, the demands of one's conscience. Um, so they, so there's a kind of double intentionality for towards the other, but also towards one's own being, towards one's own soul, towards one's heart, and the development of one's life, and that sense of the fullness and the beauty of life. So in that double intentionality, it's actually, in a way, analogous to um, consciousness, which is aware of and uh, directed to an object. That's how consciousness functions. It's, it's directed to an object. It's aware of an object. Uh, but it's secondarily, if you like, aware of itself. The, usually, the secondary awareness of awareness for itself, it's awareness of itself, it's not usually amplified to the subject. It can be amplified with practice though, and some of the emptiness teachings we've put out there involve amplifying that, getting a sense of the awareness of, of awareness. It just goes naturally with any awareness. I'm aware of the clock, I'm aware of speaking, I'm aware of the, the words that I'm listening to, but I'm also aware that I'm aware. It's just implicitly bound up it's part of what makes up awareness. And that sense of that can be amplified. Um, so it can be amplified with practice, um, with regard to awareness. But I wonder if awareness of virtues and an aspiration, a passion, a love for growing virtue can also be trained. So I think, contrary to what Nikolai Hartman says, there's a double intentionality there. We are concerned with our own soul and our own being. There's a there's a kind of self-reflexive intention. So sometimes people talk about the self-reflexive nature of awareness, which just means that awareness is aware of itself while it is primarily aware of other objects. But that self-reflexive awareness that's in, intrinsically wrapped up and part of awareness can be amplified, as I say. So there's a self-reflexive intention in ethical action as well when we choose in this way. So Hartman, let's just quote from Hartman then, the object of the high-minded or loving person is not to be high-minded or loving, but that the other person to whom something is given or whom he makes glad may have the gift or the gladness. He gives out of love, but not for the sake of being a loving person. He is concerned not at all with his own moral being, but with the being of the other person. And indeed, by no means only with that other person's moral, but with his whole being, bodily as well as mental. That is to say, with conditions that are valuable for that person. So I just wonder if that's really true or complete. And as I said, is there not also a certain kind of joy or delight or fulfillment, a sense of beauty in exercising virtues? And is this uh, self-reflexive, self-directed strand of being virtuous, is it akin somewhat also, not just to the self-reflexive nature of awareness, but also to the auto-eroticism in Eros? Which when we were unpacking uh, the nature of Eros, I think particularly in the Eros Unfettered talks, so actually auto-eroticism is, a, is, a, is an aspect, a component, a side of Eros. In other words, when we have Eros for something else, we're also enjoying our own Eros. 
More significantly, we also become an erotic object for ourselves. Our self becomes an erotic object for ourself. It's, it's maybe clearer sometimes in sexual eros, where, where when we're finding another erotically attractive, when we're engaged in, in sex with someone, there's also this finding ourselves erotically attractive. And that's actually a necessary part. It's not egoistic. It's a necessary part of how eros constellates. So there are parallels here. There's a kind of um, self-reflexive intention with awareness, with eros, and with ethical action. So all of those self-reflexive intentions or attitudes may be, in fact they usually are, relatively obscure to the consciousness. They are secondary, and we may not even notice them at first. And all of them, if they dominate too much, um, the more normal primary intentions of virtuous behavior or awareness directed towards something or other, or eros towards an erotic object, they will they will actually affect a kind of imbalanced self-centeredness, unattuned and insensitive to others and to the world, right? If actually I'm uh, the sexual eros or um, in, in lovemaking with someone else, I'm more turned on by myself um, than I am with them. Something's a bit off balance. If I'm more aware of the awareness, generally speaking, and not of the object, generally speaking, apart from isolated cases of practice in certain directions, that's not very helpful. And similarly, if I'm more concerned with my own moral development than I am actually with the effects of my kindness and, and how it impacts on this person or my generosity, then something's out of balance. But still, they are, they are elements of our lives, of our minds, of our being. So don't we aim, sometimes at least, at the image of a beautiful life? Isn't that, isn't that something of what's calling us, as I said? And again, with respect to climate change or species loss, for example, where the effects of our choices and actions are not visible to us very much at all. It's hard to see the effects. And that's part of the problem of globalization and complexity and all that. Isn't this love of virtue, the sense of one's human telos of the beautiful life, even more important than in other ethical situations or transactions? So, again, with regard to soul-making and soul, and the importance for soul of these kinds of considerations, in this double intentionality or this self-reflexive intention that's kind of part and parcel of consideration of virtues and moral values it's related to the sense or it stems from the sense of the beauty of those virtues and the sense of soul making that's potential there and the eros that we have for values which I want to come back to